several years ago in what actually seems like a lifetime now. Uh, we lived in Arlington, Virginia, where I was the preaching minister for the Arlington Church of Christ, and, and that's where we first met Josh and Sharon. And just so you're wondering, I had more hair back then, but Josh had even more hair back then. So uh, it's never been an equitable race as far as that is concerned. Uh, so while there, I was invited to teach a class at the Pepperdine University Bible Lectures, and I was just, I was pumped, I was excited uh, that I got to do that. I didn't have really any illusions of grandeur. I mean, my goal was to, for someone to be in the class that didn't know me, you know, that, that was my goal. And, and a friend of mine who was the preacher at a church in Long Beach, California, had heard that I was coming, and so he called and invited me, he said, hey, you're going to be here anyway. Why don't you come and preach for us on the Sunday before the lectures start on Tuesday? And so I was, I was thrilled uh, to accept that invitation, and uh, I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. And so what I had not thought about, a detail that had not registered in my mind, is that the Sunday that I was going to be gone was Mother's Day. Completely escaped my notice. And so here's what I did. I, I accepted the speaking invitation. I made travel arrangements, and then I told Beth. Now, those of you who've been married for a while or have had marriage counseling at some point along the way, you understand the problem with that sentence, that I accepted the invitation, I made travel arrangements, and then I said, Beth. And so I eagerly shared the news that I said, hey, honey, you'll never believe this. You know, uh, it looks like I'm a highly, highly sought-after speaker. Uh, so in addition to being at Pepperdine, I'm going to speak the Sunday before at uh, the Long Beach Church. And Beth, with just great patience and sweetness, said, but honey, you'll be gone on Mother's Day. Now, our kids were in grade school at the time, and, and I should have understood immediately what she was saying, but I didn't. I should have said, oh, sweetheart, you're so right. You're the most important thing in my life, and the kids are the most important thing. I'm canceling everything because I will be here. I will be with you on this special day. But I didn't. You see, what I needed was I needed Hitch standing behind a door prompting me, telling me what to say in this moment, but he wasn't there. And so with complete innocence and complete unawareness, here's my response. Well, honey, I don't think my mom cares where I'm going to be on Mother's Day. You know, there are some people in this world who get an exemption from the heaven entrance exams. Uh, they're school teachers, nurses, kids community volunteers, and preacher's wives. Now, the list continues to be updated on a weekly basis, so if you're unsure about your profession, just check in with me and I'll let you know if that ever gets added to the list. Well, so that Mother's Day turned out to be a very expensive Mother's Day for me. Uh, the gift I ended up uh, purchasing for her that day cost way more than the, uh, than the ticket price uh, that I had purchased to go. So today is a weird day in some ways because w in some ways we as, as parents and we as husbands, as, as kids, we're, we're trying to make these feeble, courageous, noble, heartfelt attempts to show appreciation and love towards our mothers. 
And see, most of the time, it's the way that we as children and husbands try to make up for being knuckleheads the rest of the year. We, we feel like maybe if I could just do something good today, you know, that'll make up for all of this. I knew of, of one girl who determined to cook breakfast for her mother on Mother's Day. And so she got up early and she got all the stuff together and she proudly served her mother a meal of dry toast and water. Okay, but here's the best part. The mother received the dry toast and water as if it were a meal prepared by a world-renowned chef. I mean, this is certainly an aspect of motherhood that we want to give thanks for on this day. But is that what we most want to give thanks for on a day like today? I mean, when you think about it, what qualities in our mothers inspire us just like this gratitude for a weak offering of toast and dry water. I mean, when we see a woman kneeling beside a stroller to comfort a crying child, why do we notice that? So this morning, I want us to look at the ancient story of a brave Hebrew mother and a compassionate Egyptian woman who both embody maternal love. So if you have your Bibles, it's going to be in Exodus chapter 2, and, and we're going to look at this kind of love and this kind of dedication that we admire so much. But, but before we do that, let me set the stage for you. Let me set the scene. So the book of Exodus, it opens up with a list of the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, who had gone with their father to Egypt because they're escaping a famine. And Joseph, who is one of Jacob's sons, had become a trusted advisor to the king of Egypt. And so trusted that he was put in and had great responsibility. And so his family was welcomed there and allowed to settle there even though they were foreigners. Well, time goes by in the story and the family of Israel continues to live in Egypt even after Joseph dies and even after the king that had bestowed him with such honor and responsibility dies. And so a new Pharaoh takes control of Egypt, and this Pharaoh did not know about the special relationship that Joseph had with his predecessor. And so the descendants of Joseph at this time, his brothers, the, the Hebrews or the Israelites, they begin to multiply and increase greatly in population. And so the new king, what happens is he feels threatened that they might get so big that they would join with the enemies of Egypt and destroy his rule. So this Pharaoh began to look for ways to destroy, to get rid of the Israelites. And the first thing that he does is that Pharaoh enslaves them. He, he puts brutal leaders over them and appoints them to the task of building cities and, and fortifying his kingdom. But the more the Egyptians are oppressed, the Bible says, the more they prosper and the more quickly they multiply. And so what Pharaoh does is he resorts to more drastic efforts. He issues an order that all midwives upon delivery of a baby boy born to any Hebrew woman, that that boy should be immediately put to death. And so here we have the midwives in this story in, in spite of Pharaoh's order that they could not do what he had asked. The scripture tells us that they feared God. And because they feared God, they allowed the baby boys to live. And so the number of Israelites just continues to increase and increase. 
Now, Pharaoh confronts the midwives and demands to know why his order has been disobeyed. And I love the response of the midwives. I mean, it's not only interesting, but it's rather brazen. They credit their actions not to their disobedience, but to the fact that the Hebrew women have babies quickly and that they have the babies before the midwives arrive. Now, Pharaoh, however, he was not stopped in his attempt to squash this population of people. So he issues another order. And this order is an order demanding that all Hebrew baby boys be thrown into the Nile River. Now stop for just a moment and try to imagine this political scene. Ask yourself, what kind of heart did Pharaoh have that he would issue such an order? To gather up all the baby boys of all the Hebrews and throw them into the Nile River. I mean, do you think that even his closest advisors felt safe with him as their ruler? And then think about Pharaoh's household. What might it have been like to grow up in the house of a man who had ordered the murder of hundreds and hundreds of innocent infant children? What kind of sounds could be heard in Egypt in those days? What kind of conversations and hushed tones behind closed doors? See, Egypt was a dangerous place for Hebrew families. It was no felt-bored fairy tale, for sure. And so it's in this hostile environment of fear and suspicion where, where anyone knocking on the door of your house could be there to take your child away from you. It's in this atmosphere that's laced with danger and suspicion that a man and a woman, they form a family, which is an action full of hope and full of promise. And so this is the great scene that opens Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1 that says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river. Her attendants stroll along the river's bank. When the princess saw the little basket among the reeds, she sent one of her attendants to go and get it for her. And the princess opened the basket only to discover a baby boy within it. With helpless cries, the princess's heart is touched. She said, this is a boy. It's a Hebrew child. And just then the baby's sister approaches this scene and says, should I go find someone for you to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes, please go do that. So the girl rushes home and calls the baby's mother. The baby's mother comes and the, Pharaoh, the, the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, tells her, take this child home and nurse him for me. And not only that, I will pay you for your help. So the baby's mother takes the baby home, her own baby, 
nurses the baby, and later, when he is older, the child's mother brings him back to the princess who adopted him as her own son. And the princess gives him an unusual name. It's the name Moses. Because that word, that name, literally means I drew him out of the water. Now, the women in this passage, they're unforgettable to us. They really are. I mean, we can understand the desperation of the Hebrew mother who, in spite of potential punishment, she hides her infant child from the authorities who want to kill him. We admire her resourcefulness when she places the baby in a basket on the very river which Pharaoh had demanded to be used to drown the Hebrew baby. We cannot quite fathom the spirit of trust and hope that it required for her to leave her child in that basket, but we certainly admire her strength. And we cannot miss the faith that is inherent in her actions. I mean, we're reassured by the sincere impulse of love and and concern that Pharaoh's daughter feels for Moses when she discovers him in the river. And, And more than anything else, we We recognize the hand of God in her decision to save Moses' life, sending him to be nursed by a Hebrew woman, woman, not coincidentally, which turns out to be his own mother. But what is it in this story that touches us? What is it in this story that strikes a chord in our heart? I mean, do we take pleasure in seeing that these women, knowingly or not, they have outsmarted the wicked Pharaoh? Is that what it is? Uh, Do we enjoy the irony of a Hebrew baby being raised under Pharaoh's own roof? I mean, is this a story that we like to share with our kids and, and tell them all about this? Is this a story that we love, that we come to because we appreciate the inclusion of women in Israel's history? Or is there something more significant happening in these verses that might help us and our understanding of God and shape the way we live before Him? You know, if you noticed when Sharon was reading for us Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you'll notice that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in these verses. I mean, this is surprising because the book of Exodus, it places such an emphasis on the character of God. And the way that God reveals himself to his people. The way that that God reveals himself to Moses. And and you see, within these 40 chapters of Exodus, the Lord not only shares his divine name, Yahweh, he draws himself closer to his people into intimacy with him. He makes his presence and his power known as a God of power. He acts in a mighty way with the ten mighty acts or the ten plagues. By Moses' staff, the Lord parts the Red Sea and delivers his people from from Egypt from this life of oppression and this life of slavery. It's under the leadership of Moses that the Lord introduces his special covenant with the people. We know it as the Ten Commandments. They knew it as the Ten Words. It is in this book that the Lord speaks to Moses through the burning bush. He reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai as at Mount Sinai as the Lord, the Lord, the merciful and the gracious God, a God who is slow to anger, a God who keeps steadfast and 
faithful love. It's in the book of Exodus that the people of Israel, they get to know God. And, and even though the name of God is not mentioned in chapter 2 in the verse 10 verses, this story tells us much about what God is like, about who He is, that the Lord gives, the Lord preserves, the Lord sustains, and the Lord celebrates life. See, the Hebrew mother marries and bears a child in a dangerous time. She does not allow the real threat posed by the Egyptian forces to frame her perspective. She is oriented by hope, she treasures life, and she acts in faith to protect her son. And the Egyptian woman does not allow the cruelty of her upbringing, the cruelty of the Egyptians to poison her. She arrives on the banks of the Nile River with a tender heart. Her compassion inspires her actions, and she lifts the crying baby Moses out of the basket and preserves his life. If you think about it, sometimes it seems like we live in a global Egypt. I mean, our own atmosphere is often laced with danger and suspicion. There's rumors of murder. There's talk of death. And so we notice a woman who is kneeling on the sidewalk to comfort a child. We celebrate a new birth. And so today we say thank you to mothers who remind us of what our God is like. Because every time that you have embraced us in our anger, every time that you have welcomed us in our own selfishness, every time you have chosen to be with us, you have given us life. And for the vision of possibility that you have seen in our weakness and the thread of hope that you have sown into the moments of our disappointment, we, we say thank you because in those ways you have also given us life. For the risks that you've taken to keep us safe and healthy and fed, the lengths that you've gone to protect us, we, we say thank you. You have in countless ways preserved our lives. But not only do we thank mothers, we honor the spirit of mothering. We say thank you to women and men who protect, who nurture, and who comfort. We say thank you to those who recognize this moment in their own life to be a preserver, to sustain, to cherish. We recognize the opportunity we ourselves have even to be givers of life. So every time we can embrace the one who has offended us, we give life. Every time we see the possibility in another's weakness or speak a word of hope to one who is crushed and disappointed, we give life. Every time we risk our own safety, every time we risk our own comfort to protect another, to help another, we give life. So may we keep the courage of the Hebrew mother and the compassion of the Egyptian princess alive in our hearts. May we speak and may we act in such a way to give life. And in so doing, may we grow in our likeness of God. So remember the girl who made the breakfast of dry toast and water for her mother? Well, her name is Rachel. 
And Rachel has, has been a mother now for, for many years, many years. I mean, undoubtedly, she has experienced herself the wonderful delicacies of those awkward Mother's Day offerings from children. You see, Rachel's first baby was born so premature, with so many struggles. It truly was a miracle that baby Anna survived. And in a world that disposes and discards of perfectly healthy, unwanted babies, Rachel cherished and cared for a completely unhealthy baby with fierce passion and loyalty. So yes, we notice examples of love and loyalty. Now, in addition to being friends with Rachel and her family, she interned for me one summer. And Rachel wrote the message that I delivered to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, you meet us in moments of joy <laughs> and moments of madness. You do. You meet us in the mess of our lives. And you're there because you give us you give us everything good that we have. So we praise you. We adore you. You constantly, loyally, faithfully, fierce, you work for our good. You do that. How great, how great is your love, O oh God, that you have expressed to us through Jesus Christ, the ultimate act of giving, of self-sacrifice, to nourish, to protect, to sustain, to save. Through whom we offer our praise and our thanks. Jesus, our Savior.